Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 35 working from home still for so many as COVID-19's most recent global waves dominated headlines. So too did very promising developments on a vaccine. It was a week full of reminders, though, that we are still in a global health pandemic. And we're also thinking a lot about life after the coronavirus. If there's a theme, it's be patient. With that in mind, coming up this hour... We've really not seen anything like this. And in terms of the economic and financial impact. JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes on figuring out how to fly passengers safely. I caught up with him from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on security. Plus, the president of the Philadelphia Fed, Pat Harker, on the election, the economy, and creating resilient workers. We begin, though, with the cover story of this week's magazine. It's about building a better future and what's needed. Simply put, we need global cooperation. And that's what the Bloomberg New Economy Forum will tackle. It kicks off Monday virtually, four days of global programming with a blockbuster agenda and a lineup of leaders talking about everything from the coronavirus to climate change and the biggest challenges humanity faces. For more, we checked in with Business Week economics editor Christina Lindblad and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Christina was the architect of this little package of stories and, and uh, she did a great job and that was one of the reasons that um, I wanted to have her on the show today. And obviously we talked about Zelle yesterday, which yeah. is, um, a, I thought, just a phenomenally interesting one um, in regards to Venezuela and sort of how uh, people there are making use of it to do something that, you know, the company, you know, Zelle never intended to have happen. Um, and that's just sort of an example, I think, of the approach that Christina used throughout the issue is sort of like, how do we tap into some of the, these biggest challenges that that we face, that humanity faces? And obviously, it, that kind of starts with the pandemic, since that is the, you know, one of the stories of the year, for sure. Um, Christina, can you that and kind of lay out um, what, what you learned about this story by Jason Gale and the long haulers. Yeah, thanks, Carol, for having me on. I, I've been interested in the long haulers for a while because I think we were all so focused for every day still on infection rates and hospitalizations and, and, and that, but also to understand that there are people who some of them have symptoms that are so bad that they're almost disabled they cannot go back to work and it's been several months and and that the scientific and health community can't answer the questions that they have about whether they're ultimately going to be done with this you know how long is are they going to have these symptoms well and it's interesting christina considering um you know, I think there's sometimes some populations being kind of cavalier about COVID-19. And you have to remember that, you know, some people get it, they don't have a lot of, um, you know, leftover effects, if you will, and then other people get it, and it stays with them, as you just said, for a really long time. It's just a reminder that this virus impacts us all in very different ways. That's right. Actually, one of the things that we found is that sometimes people who had no symptoms or very light symptoms actually had the biggest problems with, you know, the sort of long-term viral um, hangover, you would say. <clears throat> and, you know, the the other hangover that um, we're all going to kind of be faced with here is the economic implications of this, because COVID can have multi-organ impacts and implications. Right. And we're also starting to see that there will be an impact in terms of disability. What, what does that mean for all of us, Christina? 
Well, that's, I think, we talked to several researchers who are trying to answer just that question and something they're starting to grapple with. I mean, there have been comparisons to polio, for instance, to try to um, have long-range estimates of what would have be like if there had been no vaccines that you know they came in at the right time and i think that's going to be important here obviously the vaccine you know not to have more infected population but we still will have to answer the questions of how we help people who um, have damaged their organs their hearts um, and sometimes need um, not just pulmonary rehabilitation but they're also having but people describe brain fog as <clears throat> So, Christina, I want to talk about um, Tom Orlick of Bloomberg Economic Story, uh, which sort of talks about how they've done, they've crunched a bunch of numbers to try and figure out sort of what the path of, of global economies is going to look like over the next couple of years and decades. And, and they go so far as to say, right about 2035, we're going to see a shift in terms of um, free market economies being overtaken by by state-driven ones. Um, can you talk about wh where else he goes in that story and what it means for, for us? Can I just say, too, this is a must-read. Like, everybody has to read this to kind of understand, I think, where our world is going, Christina. Yeah, I think he did a good job of, of laying out well, where we're going to be at mid-century and, and to put numbers to something that we've been tracking for a while, which is the, the sort of, some people have said the Asian century, you know, like that this, this century belongs to Asia. And so overall emerging markets um, at the start of the century were about 20% of GDP, but, you know, through by 2050, there'll be more than half, almost 60%. And China will be by far, you know, the biggest um the biggest part of that and we have this great graphic that sort of shows the reordering of the top 10 economies you know and basically china bumps the u.s off the number one slot india bumps japan out of number three slot and you know and you see sort of the kind of youthful developing markets you know moving up and the sort of aging economies moving down that was Business Week economics editor Christina Lindblad and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Check out the full cover story and several stories. They're all related to the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. It is in this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. That is online, on newsstands, and of course, always on the Bloomberg. Coming up, no doubt thinking about many of these global issues facing our time is the CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes. He talked with me about the airline industry's woes and a safely way back. That's next on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the highlights from our daily radio broadcast and podcast, and that included drawing on a panel I did at this week's third annual 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security. Now, that event brings together many of the world's leading voices on security matters from across the public and private sectors. It's all about figuring out ways to make our companies, cities, and nations safer. Now, that's something top of mind for Robin Hayes. He's the CEO of JetBlue Airways, who is constantly thinking about how to keep passengers and his crew members safe. I just want to shout out everyone on the front lines of this pandemic. You know, uh, we talk a lot about the medical workers who have just done a phenomenal job, but uh, airline employees, uh, TSA, Customs, Border Protection, and all law enforcement officers have been at the uh, forefront of this. So just a huge shout out to uh, all of them. We couldn't have done this uh, without their tremendous support. Um, you know, um, uh, for those of us who are in the industry at 9-11, it really was one of those uh, defining moments. And you think that... Uh, 
when you've got that behind you in your career, it's unlikely you're going to see anything like that ever again, uh, or at least you hope you do. Uh, and of course, that's not true. I mean, um, as hard as 9-11 was on the industry, um, it really, uh, we've seen with this pandemic something that has a far bigger impact. And, you know, with 9-11, as awful as it was, there was a sense of, okay, we now, uh, you know, the, the, the worst has passed us. We need to put, sort of protect the aviation system to make sure those threats don't come back. But I think with the pandemic, we're here, what, seven months on? Uh, we're entering into another wave. Things could get worse. And so I think just the um, amount of uncertainty that's been created over a longer period of time. Um, I mean, the industry is still 60 to 70% down on um, where it was pre-pandemic. And after 9-11, uh, we'd already sort of uh, uh, recovered uh, by a significant degree six or seven months later, at least in terms of volumes of people flying. I mean, Robin, is it safe to say that we are looking when it comes to the airline industry, when it comes to security, security this is kind of the biggest moment, the biggest test once again since 9-11 though? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, actually, I mean, I think in uh, since, uh, you know, uh, commercial aviation first started, we've never seen mm -hmm. anything. We've really never seen anything like this and in terms of the economic and financial impact. Um, and the only um, uh, the only uh, moderating impact, uh, issue, the only moderating factor this time was the industry was in much better shape coming into this than it was back uh, pre 9-11. I want to get a little bit of a gut check because I feel like every day on Bloomberg, we certainly are talking about the airline industry, um, you know, the amount of money that's been lost, the jobs that have been lost. I mean, your industry, as you firsthand know, um, it's just been so, so tough. I do wonder, how do you juggle? How do you think about, because you have to think about security for passengers, security for your crew members, safety for all of them. You're juggling a lot. It's also about survival and keeping this industry going, one that is so important to our economy on the other side. Yeah, uh, you know, when we uh, when this um, uh, first happened, uh, I, we, we remember uh, in JetBlue, you know, calling everyone in and uh, saying, OK, what are we got to do here? Number one priority is to ensure the safety and security of our customers and, and uh, crew members, which is our word for employees. Now, you know, as Peter knows, historically, when you've talked about that, you've talked about making sure airplanes are safe, they're well maintained mm -hmm. and that we prevent uh, uh threats to security or threats to the safety of flight uh, getting near the airplane. That's the whole system is built around that. US has done a job, better job than anyone else in the world in, in putting that safety inf and security infrastructure in place. But suddenly we had an invisible enemy. We didn't know where it was. We didn't even know what we were looking at. So one, safety and security of our people and customers uh, and recognizing that um, uh, you know, sometimes the ability to do that lags the information we've got. Uh, like everyone else, you know, we had a big discussion about PPE. We, we remember it was priority was the healthcare system to begin with. You know, what the benefits of masks and face coverings wasn't mm -hmm. fully understood. So we had people in JetBlue saying, you know, why can't we uh, issue face coverings? Well, first of all, that wasn't the official advice, and secondly, you couldn't get them back then. The second part was financial security and making sure. Uh, we did what we could do to protect our airline and make sure uh, that we could weather this uh, pandemic. You know, Robin, what are your expectations for recovery? What kind of visibility do you have? You said, I think earlier that, you know, we still have a ways to go. Yeah. I mean, what's your visibility on this? Yeah, so we just, uh, um, you know, quarter three, we uh, were burning just over $6 million of cash a day. 
Um, you know, for Q quarter four, we think that's going to be slightly better uh, between between four to six million dollars a day. Uh, you know, that's down significantly from the second quarter. But of course, it's not sustainable over the long term. And so as we think about 2021, one of the things that uh, I think the airline industry believes is that uh, leisure travel uh, and domestic travel will recover more quickly than international travel or business travel. Uh, so you know, we're focused on making sure uh, that we're positioned well for that. We've announced over 60 new routes at JetBlue during this pandemic, focusing on those sort of leisure markets and where we think people are going to want to fly uh, in the short term. And I think about what are the necessary systems, right? After 9-11, you know, now we've gotten used to taking off our shoes or putting liquids in containers. Like it's just mm -hmm. become the normal way of traveling. Robin, what do you see as some of the necessary systems that are going to be put in place and probably with us from now on? Because we could get another health pan pandemic or crisis. I mean, I think there are some things that will change for, for, for good. And uh, you know, I think awareness of public health, a sort of a pressure to make sure that if you're not feeling well, for whatever reason, that you don't fly. You know, airlines making it easier for people to change uh, tickets so that they're not forced to fly when they're sick. And I remember the old days. I was going through some stuff the other day and I found the old vaccination certificates <laughs> when I had as a child because certain countries, mm -hmm. you know, you had to show you had had a yellow fever vaccination and, and, and uh, such like. And I, I think going forward, you know, I, I see a world... Um, I think it will start with COVID, but I think we will create the infrastructure that we can use it for other pandemics using some of these tools and technologies where, you know, whether you have been vaccinated, whether you've had a recent test, these will be some of the requirements to fly to at least uh, on to some countries, uh, if not if not more globally. I mean, I actually think in 2021, the way these international markets start opening up, um, because everyone's focused on the vaccine, but the vaccine mm -hmm. is only going to be part of this you know only certain proportion of people will take a vaccine it's only partly affected we can't rely on it and so we're going to have to have other ways of giving people comfort that they can fly in an airplane go to where they're going to go and they're going to uh, remain completely safe that's JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes with an important reminder that it will be several measures that will need to bring passengers back to planes. By the way, that conversation happened before the promising vaccine news this week, which we know got many excited, but like Robin, reminded us that there are still several steps and months before we see a world vaccinated against the coronavirus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Some optimism with the reports of the vaccine efficacy from the Pfizer vaccine. Dr. William Moss of the International Vaccine Access Center at Johns Hopkins on the race for a vaccine, that race picking up speed this week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. COVID-19 cases reached a record in the U.S. We were also watching Europe's hotspots as well this week. A lot of virus headlines. And then Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top U.S. infectious disease official, said COVID won't be a pandemic for a lot longer because of rapid progress in vaccine development. A lot going on. And in the thick of it, Dr. William Moss, executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. That school, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. Well, Dr. Moss joined us on what's been a big week in the race for a vaccine. We are seeing record numbers uh, of cases in the United States. We're seeing uh, high numbers of deaths, hospitals that are uh, really being stretched to the limits. 
And that that pattern is going to continue for the next couple of months as we head into winter. Uh, more uh, more people being indoors, more people interacting indoors into the holiday season. But as you said, there we also have uh, some optimism with the reports of the vaccine efficacy from the Pfizer vaccine being much higher than people expected, 90%, recognizing that uh, we only know about this through a press release, presumably from uh, a review of the data by an independent safety monitoring board. But what we still do not know, right, as as these headlines come out from a Pfizer, we're anticipating some news from Moderna as well. That's promising. We don't know what how long protection lasts. We don't know right. exactly what these vaccine ultimately will do, right? That's right. There are still a number of uh, outstanding questions. And I have uh, confidence we'll be able to an- answer these questions. But what we know now is that in the, this late stage of these phase three clinical trials uh, with uh, the results from the Pfizer vaccine demonstrating, showing, you know, high protection. 90% of people who got the vaccine were protected compared to the placebo group. Um, But as you said, there are still a number of outstanding questions. For example, we don't know what the vaccine efficacy is in older adults or people with underlying medical conditions that place them at higher risk for severe disease of COVID-19. That'll come out of the trial results, but we don't know that now. We don't know how long this protection is going to last. We hope it's going to last a year, years or more, um, but we just don't know. And that's going to take further follow-up of these participants in the trials until we really know uh, how long the protection lasts. We also won't know whether there are long-term side effects. Um, Again, we need the longer follow-up. We need the full trial data to be able to see that. But right now, what we'll be able to say is in the short term, these vaccines look protective. These vaccines look safe. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Well, yes, fingers crossed, right? Dr. Moss, so what happens next? Um, you know, I do feel like we are all learning about, I've, I've said it before, how the sausage is made in terms of vaccine <laughs> development, right? It, we're yeah. all talking about it so much. And I know that there's some nervousness about the rapidity of the process, but we are learning about how it all happens. So what's kind of next here, whether it's the Pfizer vaccine, whether it's Moderna's vaccine, what are yes. you anticipating how things play out over the next few weeks, few months? Yes, and you're exactly right. I don't think there's ever been such public scrutiny of the vaccine development and uh, evaluation process. What we anticipate happening next is that a company such as Pfizer or Moderna will need to put uh, submit an application to the Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization so that these vaccines could uh, be made available to high-risk individuals uh, as early as possible. What the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has uh, put forth as guidelines is that the trials need to wait until at least half of the participants have had two months of follow-up. Mm. Uh, Pfizer anticipates that that's going to happen uh, later this month, third, fourth week of uh, November, and then they will be able to submit uh, their application for an emergency use authorization to the FDA. The, the, uh, all the trial data will then be reviewed uh, by an independent body. Hopefully, data will be made public. Hopefully, this whole process will be transparent. We need that for the public's trust. 
Um, and I would anticipate uh, shortly after the application and this review process that there would be, assuming the safety and efficacy data hold up, um, that will have an emergency use authorization. Pfizer says that they'll have 40, 50 million doses ready to go um, uh, by the, uh, the end of this year. That's been one of the wow. things that's allowed this process to be accelerated, that the manufacturing has, has gone on with the studies. You know, there would have not be any, any kind of changes to the vaccine mm-hmm. that was used uh, during the trials. They've, they've scaled up that manufacturing. That's Dr. William Moss, Executive Director of the International Vaccine Access Center at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Getting on the other side of COVID may create an opportunity for us to give American workers a leg up. More on that from the president of the Philadelphia Fed. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week in a Bloomberg Live event focusing on strengthening economic resiliency and the American worker, I talked with the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. Well, he and his team have been focusing on the importance of an equitable workforce recovery. It's something that can help get at the inequities in our current workforce. It's also sometimes just a matter of first looking at what workers really need. Workers want to A, feel like they're valued and that they're rewarded for their work. And people who haven't made it yet, right, people who want to get into the middle class, uh, they they need a ladder up. They need a rung up on the ladder. They feel frustrated. And that's not just in the urban centers. That's true across the country. I think about my district in rural uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, They feel the same way. So I think that's the work we're trying to do at the Philly Fed is to figure out how to accelerate that process to bring more people into the middle class. And we're going to break it all down. What do you think about, though, in terms of a new administration, in terms of leadership, and in terms of really the meaningful policy discussions that we need to be having when it comes to workers? Because it's amazing, and you and I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, in terms of forgotten workers. It's not just a 2020 thing. It's been around for years. Exactly. And I think first, um, I'm looking forward to having policy discussions, right? Deep policy discussions, having a debate. This is the nature of our democracy, having that debate. And I think this is worthy of a serious debate. I think this is one of the most critical problems we have. Because if we don't solve this problem, then people lose hope, right? And when they lose hope, uh, lots of bad things happen, whether to their health or to their communities. So we've got to focus on this right now. So, I also want to ask you one other macro. What is the economic backdrop that we're going to be dealing with as workers? One of the things I know we have a lot of conversations in our newsroom is workers are worried. They're either worried about keeping their job or they don't have a job. What's the what's the economic backdrop we're going to be dealing with for the next six to 12 months? So start out quickly. Before the pandemic hit us, we had a strong economy. It wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. It wasn't perfect for everyone, but it was strong. This pandemic has shown us a lot of problems that we have, underlying problems we've had in our society, whether they're racial injustice and, and, and inequity, um, or just the, the fragility of somebody and their family in terms of their well-being. That has now been exacerbated. Plus, it's accelerated trends we already saw with respect to automation and, and other trends that we saw. So 
this pandemic, uh, I think we're not just going to snap right back to the previous economy. I, I think that's unrealistic. There are people, though, that need to be retrained. This has accelerated, for example, trends in re- retail. Right? We've seen that. I, yeah, okay. I don't think retail is going to come back in the same way. So we're going to have to figure out how to retrain that workforce and not just to get a different job at the same pay, but ideally at a better job with higher skills. How worried are you about the U.S. labor force when you think about it overall? Because, you know, what's interesting. I feel like if you go back to when the major auto companies, right, all over Detroit, I mean, you know, working mm-hmm. in a Ford plant or a GM plant, that was a great middle class job. You supported your yeah. family well. Those have been gone for a long time. And I feel like now we're going to we're going to see another cycle of that hit the American worker. But it's up to us. I really believe I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm an engineer by training. I'm an optimist. We can solve this problem. This is not some problem that can't be solved. If we put our minds to it and collectively put our minds to it, government, business, nonprofits, we can move this. And this is the work we're doing at the Philly Fed that we can talk about. Well, so let's talk about creating economic resiliency when it comes to American workers. You guys have a program. It's called the Economic Growth and Mobility Project. Um, And as you said, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, you reminded me, the poorest large city in the United States. So you guys have really been looking at your backyard in terms of what, again, has been a systemic problem. Tell us about this program and what you're doing. So it starts from decades of work we've done and a conference, a major conference we do every other year called Reinventing Our Communities, which I really like this conference. It brings together policymakers, academics, uh, philanthropies, business leaders to mix it up to figure out how to come up with practical solutions to solve the problems we face. We then doubled down on that when we put together our Economic Growth and Mobility Project, or what we call EGMP. EGMP has three legs to this stool. how to create a more resilient economy. One is creating good jobs, what we call opportunity occupations, jobs that pay above median wages, i.e. middle-class jobs, where you don't necessarily need a four-year college degree, right? Pathways to success that don't necessarily require a college degree. Second is innovation in skills training. And then third is I broadly characterize it as infrastructure, housing, transportation, broadband access. You could put healthcare access in that. If you can't get to a job or the job can't get to you, you don't have a job. So you have to solve all three of these things together systemically to make a real difference. That's the work we're doing right now. Well, that's what, you know, even just that whole idea of infrastructure, you gave us an example when you and I talked, um, getting ready for this this conversation about, you know, there were jobs, but people just couldn't physically get to them. Yeah, so the EGMP program has research on those three stools. And then we have what we call research and action labs. And these are deep dives into a community on a problem in that community, but we think it's a problem more broadly. uh, People are suffering this all across the country. So the first one we took on was Northeast PA. Northeast PA, the Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Hazleton area, there were jobs out on the highways. There are logistics jobs, truck repair jobs, et cetera. And by the way, these jobs can be good jobs, like truck repair, diesel mechanics, can make upwards Mm -hmm. of six figures uh, in these jobs. But the people, low-income people living in, say, the city of Scranton, didn't have cars to get to those jobs, particularly in second and third shift. So we organized a conference. We brought some national experts in. And then we helped organize a group with a local university uh, at the heart of this to help solve that problem. 
They now have something called NEPA moves, Northeast PA moves, and they're solving this problem. They're figuring out how to do this. What I like about this story is Geisinger, the main healthcare system up there, they were all in on this. I mean, they were very supportive. But then they realized, you know, it's not just about jobs. If somebody misses a doctor's appointment, it costs us $70 when they added up the cost. And then they figured out it's worth it to us to help that person get to that doctor appointment. So they created a system where they help people get on transit to get there. And if there's a last mile or miles that need to be closed, they close it with an Uber or a van. That kind of creative thinking is what we need to spread across the country. It sounds like, too, that public-private partnership, this is an important part of all of this. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the second one we're doing with respect to uh, our Action Lab, is around workforce Mm -hmm. development. Uh, A major tech company in Philadelphia partnering with the government job training board uh, to create a customized program to train workers that they need. And what's different about this, and we think this is the first of its kind in the U.S., is that firm is then reimbursing the government entity for every successful hire, success being, being successful on the job for several months. That's never really happened before. Here's a true public-private partnership where it's not just in words. It's in the action and putting money on the table to help accelerate this process. How did COVID impact all of this? Because I think about pre-COVID, you know, we were looking at a really strong labor force. We didn't have enough workers out there. So how has COVID exacerbated this situation? What kind of setback um, has been, you know, given to American workers as a result of it. So, as I said earlier, uh, this pandemic that we're this tragic pandemic we're living through has accelerated trends we already saw in training. Right, so automation being one of those, and we know those jobs are being automated are often jobs held by low-income people, by women, and by underrepresented minorities. Our research documents that, and there's others who have documented that as well. So that's just made the situation worse for people who are fragile. I mean, their situation economically is very fragile. And so here is where we really need to focus on retraining those people into different jobs as quickly as we can. And there are jobs for them. I mean, one of the studies that we did, which I'm really uh, excited about, our economists and the economists at Cleveland Fed looked Mm -hmm. at the following situation. They said, take a low-skilled job that may be going away because of automation or because of the pandemic, say travel and tourism or hospitality, map that skill set that they have, like a sales skill set they can sell, to a higher-paying job. And what's the skill set that you need, the training that you need to do that? They looked at 33 metro areas across the U.S., and roughly half the jobs they could match from one skill set to a higher skill set, with an average increase in salary, annual salary of $15,000, a 49% increase in salary. So this is real. That's the opportunity if we just work together to make this happen. And what we need to stop, and in the uh, skill workforce training business, There's a phrase that people use called the train and pray model. And the train and pray model is basically uh, we're going to we think this is the skill set the market needs. We're going to train them and then we're going to pray that they get a job that we need to break the back of. 
train and pray model. Well, this is a year that has reminded us big time that we cannot afford to do that on so many levels. That's some advice from the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Coming up, tech entrepreneur Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square and founder of Invisibly on getting election polling right. Also, the Academy Award-winning filmmaker. He's covered Enron, COVID, and now crazy, not insane minds. We check in with Alex Gibney. That's coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in this second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, we've got highlights from our daily radio show, including stories in the magazine and some of our favorite interviews, including Square co-founder Jim McKelvey on creating new election polling technology that, well actually gets it right. Go figure. Plus, Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin on keeping tabs when it comes to COVID burnout among her ranks, and Oscar award-winning documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney on his latest HBO project, Crazy Not Insane. First up, all week long, the Bloomberg Terminal filled with stories about a Biden administration, the team, and the policies. In keeping with that, a story in the magazine from Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy about Bidenomics and how that would be a return to normalcy. Here's more from Peter and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. One of the scenarios that we had to uh, uh, kind of plan for last week was, you know, eventually, and it ended up coming on Saturday, you know, what what, what does this country look like under uh, President-elect uh, Biden? And, and more specifically, what does it mean for business and the economy? And, and for that, you know, Peter Coy, um, you know, deftly raised his hand and said, I, I think I know. Uh, and we said, oh, please tell us. So, so Peter, what's your, what's your thesis for what Bidenomics means for America? Well, it comes out of what we know about Joe Biden, his long history in Congress and Senate, and his personality, uh, and the circumstances the country is in right now. So you, you extrapolate from all those things, and you come up with, with a fairly centrist person in a country that is divided, um, he did win, but uh, it, there are a lot of people, uh, the Republicans that are likely to control the Senate, and a lot of people out there who uh, voted for him who mainly were voting against Trump and more for poli- personality reasons than policy reasons. So he doesn't have, like, a strong mandate, A. And, and the, let me do it uh, Biden's way, number one. And number two, um, number two is that even if he did want to advance a strong Democratic platform, Mitch McConnell is very likely to retain the position of Senate Majority Leader, won't let him, the same way he blocked Obama's agenda when Biden was the VP. So I got to say, Peter, love your story, as always. We always learn so much. But I, I do wonder, so as you point out, you know, a divided Congress and a Republican Senate with a Democrat in the White House could be good for the markets and corporate yeah, profits, right? right? But what does it mean for the economy and economic policies? Well, yeah, well, let's first start out with why the stock market uh, seemed to like it. Um, you would, might have thought that because the, ch- the chance of a strong stimulus faded a little bit, because uh, the Republican Senate might have given a big, uh, if, if uh, Trump had gotten reelected, might have uh, voted for a big package just to bolster their man, less likely to do so if it's a Biden White House. 
similarly, there would have been a big package if Democrats had taken the Senate and Biden had won. So with divided government, you get probably less stimulus. So that's a short-term thing. But it could be that what was happening is the financial markets were looking ahead to the uh, prospect of smaller tax increase than they would have had if the Democrats had taken the Senate, which seemed like a real possibility for a while there. Peter, can we also talk about um, uh, taxes? Uh, what, what, should, yeah. uh, what should we uh, expect from Biden on that front? Well, well, we can say what he said he wants to do, which is uh, insulate people earning less than $400,000 a year from any tax increase uh, and raise the corporate income tax rate, which was cut under the uh, Trump tax cut of 2017 from 35 down to 21. Uh, the, the 35 rate was one of the world's highest. Well, there were a lot of loopholes in it that made it effectively lower than that, but still, that headline rate was quite high. At 21, it's, it's right in the ballpark, maybe even on the low side among other rich uh, industrialized nations. Uh, Biden's talking about putting back up to 28%, um, so splitting the difference between the old one and the new one. Uh, he's also talking, by the way, for people in the New York metro area who are listening to this program, uh, lifting the cap on the uh, SALT uh, deductions to so make it, so that will be a well, break, break for people. Can I just say having, um, I'm embarrassed, but filing on extension, just getting it done, uh, it'll be interesting to see if we have some changes And from one of those blue states where we yeah. were impacted, certainly when it came to some of those local taxes. You know, yeah. what's interesting is, you know, you say Trump did get a lot of things done, yeah, even did. if you didn't agree with how he did it. So what do we need to think about in terms of those things that he did get done? Well, um, one of the things he did was he got um, tougher on China mm. and the, uh, obviously, a lot of tariffs. And there are a lot of Democrats who think it was time to get tough on China. They thought the Obama administration, <laughs> which Biden worked for, of course, did not do enough. Uh, but they don't necessarily agree with the way Trump went about it. Um, what, it, what Trump did was try to basically go it alone. So he didn't just take on China. He sort of took on the world. Mm. And that alienated a lot of allies, uh, the Japanese, the Europeans, who could have been on America's side presenting a united front against China. And so one of the things Biden is almost certain to do is to, uh, you know, bolster America's role in the World Trade Organization, uh, see about uh, entering multilateral trade deals, He's not likely to roll back the tariffs on China um, that Trump put on anytime soon because he would want to see, you know, you want to get something for any, anything you give back. Right. And China's not likely to budge a lot either. So don't, don't expect the temperature uh, to cool a whole lot between the U.S. and China under a Biden administration, let alone the issue that the Democrats will push a lot harder on the human rights angle. Well, as we know, Democrats and Republicans pushing this week on so many different things as we look to the next era when it comes to Washington politics and a new administration. Again, that was Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Check more in the magazine for stories from Peter. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up, Square co-founder Jim McKelvey on technology that may fix what ails our election polling. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're bringing you some of our favorite interviews and highlights from this week on Bloomberg Business Week Radio. And this week, we welcome back Jim McKelvey. He's co-founder of Square. He's still on the board there. He's also author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. He's also founder and chairman of the St. Louis-based Invisibly. It's an independent data-centric company. Jim is also deputy chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He's a pretty busy guy. But what we really wanted to drill down on is his company Invisibly and its accuracy on polling this election season. Check it out. Invisibly is a company that's mission is to get people more control of their online data. And in the process of building that, we built this little tool that did surveys. We didn't think much of it. Hmm. But uh, some Republican uh, strategists got a hold of it about six months ago, and they did a little test and discovered that the tool was shockingly accurate. So from a little $2,000 test, the Republicans ended up spending uh, well over a million dollars doing polls with this technology. And uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm on the Federal Reserve. I am politically neutral. So my job is to see both sides well-informed. And I uh, did my best to reach out and share this news uh, with both sides. And amazingly, the Democrats didn't listen. They didn't pay any attention at all. And I have several stories of this. But, I mean, the fact is that uh, we've been able to call the election to within um, a quarter point. And if you compare the data that, uh, for instance, 538, which is sort of an aggregation of the best polls did, Mm -hmm. they were off by almost three points. So it's nine times more accurate and, frankly, way less expensive. And I just couldn't believe people weren't listening to us. Well, so how come, I mean, listen, you guys are all in on on data because you knew Ohio wasn't going to be close. I mean, it's really pretty pretty wild. Arizona could be or would be a swing. So what was it about, and I know you can't give away all your secrets, but what was it about the data collection, the types of data or the algorithms? What was it, generally speaking, that you think made it a better predictor? I I think the best way to describe it is it's like manners. Hmm. Um, For instance, if somebody asks you a question and they're rude, you don't answer it. If somebody asks you the exact same question and they're polite and respectful, you might give them an answer. And I mean, I mean manners is one of these subtle things. I got two kids at home, so I'm <laughs> obsessed with teaching them good manners. I and it's, it. it's, it's a hard thing. You can't just describe it in two seconds of a soundbite. But the fact is, it's who you ask. It's the way you ask. Mm-hmm. It's the question you ask. And it's when you ask. And all of these things, if they're handled correctly, can get you a very honest, accurate answer. So did you, in terms of doing this and developing this, Jim, you know, look at past polls and kind of how they did it to figure out maybe what was a better way? No. Uh, and, and, and funny enough, this is sort of what I talk about in the innovation stack of my book. And that is a lot of times when you stumble on something new, it's <laughs> right. because you didn't copy what everybody else was doing. And we were not intending to be a polling company. Like, this is not yeah. what Invisibly does. It's not our job. It just we just sort happened. of stumbled on this thing that was shockingly accurate. And so uh, we went with it. But it was, it was an accidental discovery, you know, sort of like a lot of stuff. Well, it's interesting that you say this, too, though. Um, one of our, our colleagues, David Weston, had caught up with Frank Luntz, who's well-known for his polling. But he said, we need to figure out a different way in that, you know, whether it was folks who supported Donald Trump maybe didn't want to talk to certain polls because they didn't like the media outlet or didn't like the approach. Exactly that, what you're talking about. And that definitely skews the numbers. 
Absolutely. There, there are a bunch of things that skew the numbers. It's when you ask. It's the way you ask. It's the question you ask. It's whether or not people feel safe. And, um, boy, you put somebody in a stressful situation or you feel like they're being judged, uh, they're not going to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Well, so then, so what do you think about that in terms of applications going forward? You, as you said, kind of an accidental business. You didn't plan this. Is this, you know, you anticipate kind of pushing this out as a business even more? Well, I just think it's good for the world. Like, I think yeah. it's not just politics. I think knowing the subtleties of how your message is being received by people is super important. And we just proved it big time. By you know, this is an election. We got to call our shots. So we made our predictions, mm-hmm. posted them up where everyone could see them. And sure enough, they were within a quarter point. You know, so, so I, but I think the application here is anyone that has to communicate can now judge the effectiveness of that communication in almost real time. How does the world look to you, Jim, right now? What kind of visibility do you have um, when we try to think about the virus, the economy, kind of the election? There's just so many big things going on right now. Well, I'm happy the election is over. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, as as somebody who's, you know, sort of lived through the virus, both as a small business person, as somebody who's, you know, funding vaccine research Mm -hmm. and, and watching the data at the Fed, um, I, I have to say this, you know, it's, it's actually fairly hopeful. We had a solid economy before the pandemic, uh, and this is the first time we've ever taken a, a robust economy and voluntarily shut it down for health reasons. So that's never been done before in history. And what I'm, I'm literally looking at the data that I'm going to present to the, the Federal Reserve in about 10 minutes. And um, we you know, do the data here in St. Louis, right. and it's not terrible. Like, it's, it's, it's obviously very, very bad for certain people. Mm-hmm. But the economy does seem to be, you know, bouncing back. So that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, the other thing, not to be too, you know, sort of uh, upbeat about this, is that, you know, times of crises are really good at accelerating trends that are going to come anyway. So if we would all be doing Zoom meetings five years from now, now we're all doing Zoom meetings today. So it's a great time for um, innovation and companies who are building the future uh, really have a pronounced advantage during times of crises. It can be uncomfortable, though, as we go it, right? That dislocation as we go through it. Oh, it's it. always uncomfortable. Yeah. But, but see, that's the thing. Doing something new is always uncomfortable. But if you're doing something new, one of the hardest things, and I, I guess we just talked about that with our you know, polling technology. Like, we mm-hmm. just invented this great new polling technology, and, and I couldn't get anybody to listen to us, okay? <laughs> I totally failed. And I, you know, I've been at this for a while, and I know a bunch of important people, and I couldn't do it. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you build something new, one of the most frustrating things is the world will ignore it if things are going well. And um, right now, if you have a new invention, you have the chance of getting people to notice it far mm-hmm. better than they would under normal circumstances. Because when, when things are normal, you do what you did yesterday. You don't look for new stuff. You don't change. Right. When, when the world is imploding and you're living at home and you're kids are driving you crazy because you're homeschooling, like that's the time you actually look out and say, hey, is there any other options? So if you're in the business of innovation, which is always messy, it's a good thing to be in somewhat of a crisis. Well, messy, that we certainly are. And we've heard that a lot too from global leaders that in times of crisis, it often sparks innovation. Good to hear from Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, author of the Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Check out his book. He's also founder and chairman of Invisibly. Hear that full conversation at Bloomberg.com. Coming up, Verizon Business's CEO Tammy Irwin on employee burnout and leadership during unprecedented times. That's next on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. 
is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Our final half hour, we're going to talk about mental well-being, although let me put this out there. We've got two very different sides of that. First up, at a Bloomberg Live breakaway town hall and as part of an ongoing leadership series in the era of remote work, this time with a specific focus on burnout and employee mental health, I checked in with Verizon Business Executive Vice President and CEO Tammy Irwin, who, because she has workers and customers around the globe, has been dealing with the virus since January. I began with how the ongoing pandemic is increasingly taking its toll on workers at many companies. Here's what she had to say. As I think about where we are almost a year into this crisis, what started as a, I think, a physical health crisis, I think is increasingly becoming a mental health crisis for all of us as we think about kind of the duration of the COVID crisis and the uncertainty of how long it continues for. Um, I, I think about when it first started in the first half of the year, I think we all thought if we can just get to summer, it'll be over. And then I think we thought if we can get through summer and we can get to school, the school year, kids will go back to school. And now we're like, whoa, what, when does it end? And we've had to really focus our efforts uh, on how do we create a sense of hope? How do we acknowledge the anxiety and stress that people are feeling? And then how do we try to build an environment that allows our employees to do what they do so well, which is create resiliency and I, I be clear on what success looks like so that they can lean in and feel confident that what they're doing is making a difference in defining the purpose of what they do every day. So, Tammy, how do you do that? Okay, so mental wellness. I know when you and I talked last week, we live in a society as evolved as we are that it's still uncomfortable for a lot of people to say, it's easy for me to say, I've got to go to the doctor. I've got something physically wrong. But when there's something in right. my head that's not quite right, it's hard for us to admit as a society. How do you do it, especially when we can't even talk face to face? We've got to do it virtually. So how do you keep tabs on your teams that some of the individuals who may be having a tough time? Yeah, listen, I, I think it takes a series of things to really open up that dialogue and conversation. You're right. It's not a conversation we want to have in the open. We tend to whisper like, oh, I think somebody is having a hard time. Mm -hmm. I think historically that's how we've dealt with it. And I think that uh, what we're seeing is that we really have to put mental illness, stress, anxiety, suicide, um, addiction, all of those things into the middle of the table and realize that they impact and affect everybody. And the way that we collectively show up on behalf of how we lift each other up and acknowledge and recognize the stress, care for it, help people get the resources that they need to be successful has been really important. We've actually in um, our series of communication that we call Up to Speed, which is how we communicate broadly to our employees around the world. And we open it up, quite frankly, uh, to anyone who wants to participate. But we've done a lot of highlighting of some of the challenges around mental health, around suicide, around domestic violence, around child abuse, around addiction, to really say these are real and they're happening in increasing odds because of what we've all been through in the last year. And here are the resources that are available to you and to your family and to the community in which we live. And I think that's so important that we put a spotlight on it and make it okay to talk about. So you know too though, like I work for a great company too and there's tons of resources. And there's one thing about knowing that there's an array of resources. There's another thing of making sure people kind of reach out and, and tap into it. So I'm curious whether it's through your line managers, how are you making where somebody says, you seem like you're having a tough time. I want you to you know, kind of either push them and help them in terms of finding what they need. 
How do you make yeah, sure basically we, we, that people who are having a tough time, like tap into the array of resources that you guys are offering up? Yeah, I, I think that's a very fair question of how do you really make sure it's doing? And I don't, I don't know that you always know that it's happening, but I can tell you that some of the framework that we've created has said we've done a quarterly pulse survey. So we've asked our employees directly, how are you feeling? What more do you need from us as an employer to really deal with the crisis that you're in? We've asked managers to then go through that feedback and work an action plan with their team more broadly and with people individually. We've also used our performance management cycle, our quarterly cycle of performance management to really touch in uh, with employees and say, how are you feeling about your work environment? Thank you for inviting us into your home uh, to work over the last uh, six months because that's really what employees have done. We've found ways to celebrate the kids, the cats, and the dogs that are in the background of the Zoom calls that we're all in. We've tried to ask parents to take uh, some time to help educate their kids when they get up and get started in the morning. Uh, and so we've really worked to try to create that one-to-one -one relationship, the team relationship, and then a broader framework of the tools that are available. You only know that if you ask the question. And we've created a dialogue of uncomfortable conversations for the purpose of getting comfortable that our employees have what they need to really feel successful. That's Tammy Irwin, Executive Vice President and CEO of Verizon Business Group at a Bloomberg Live Breakaway Town Hall this week. It's all about leadership and safe to say it's been a year of all of us needing to get comfortable about having uncomfortable conversations about really important issues. Whether you're a leader or whether you're an employee, we've all got to start talking about it. Straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to stay with mental health, but truly transparent here. It's a different perspective. Academy Award-winning director Alex Gibney on his new HBO documentary, Crazy Not Insane. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So let's wrap up this week. As we know, we are living in a world where we are talking a lot more about our physical and mental well-being. With that in mind, a new HBO documentary looks at the minds of a specific group that exists in our population and basically asks, what makes killers kill? Yeah, I bet I got your attention on that one. All right, Oscar-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney joined us on that. He's founder of Jigsaw Pictures. He's the filmmaker behind, I bet you know these films, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. He's also done documentaries on WikiLeaks and Elliot Spitzer. His new documentary is called Crazy Not Insane. We're going to talk about that. But first up, I had to check in with him about how his world has been under COVID. We found ways of re editing remotely. And we even pioneered. I mean, I, uh, you know, myself and, and two colleagues just finished a film about the, you know, federal response to COVID totally under control. And we pioneered a new kind of camera called the COVID cam, which enabled people to actually get a camera on their doorstep uh, and we could remotely monitor it uh, via the via the web. And no, no human beings wow. had to come in contact with each other. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Is that that's not out yet, is it? It is. It, it, oh, it came out. Me. It came out on. It was on Hulu. Um, it still is on Hulu. Uh, came out, but it it came out just before the election, around October fifteenth. All right. Sorry, I've been a little dist distracted because of the election. So, There's a lot going on. My, my apologies. So tell me about um, your documentary, Crazy Not Insane. I, to be fair, I've seen a trailer, so um, I've seen a little clip of it. A clip of it. You know, you follow the work of a, a notable psychiatrist who has assessed a number of high-profile killers like Ted Bundy, Mark David Chapman. 
tell us a little bit about her and how you came to kind of do this documentary. Her name is Dorothy Otnow Lewis, and I came to her as part of research for a scripted project I'm doing with Laura Dern. Uh, and Laura came to me with a notion of, of wanting to do something about psychiatrists whose job it is to examine uh, inmates on death row and determine whether they are sane enough to be executed, um, and which is kind of a crazy idea uh, in and of itself. And so in, in doing research for that, I, I, I was looking for prototypes for this character and found uh, Dorothy. And Dorothy had written a book about her experiences but um, she was a, a, a psychiatrist who, after studying juveniles for many, many years, stumbled into the world of testifying on behalf of usually defense attorneys, either in trials or for death penalty appeals, and, uh, and pioneering a new kind of research into uh, the minds of killers uh, and trying to determine how and why, well, not so much how, more why they kill. Right. Um, and, and so it, it became a kind of fascinating tour uh, through, um, through Dorothy's work, who is a kind of detective of the mind. I mean, I, I don't want to give it all away because I want people to go watch it. But I mean, what was she like? I mean, this is this is kind of interesting. I mean, the subject matter is just fascinating. But I'm curious what she was like and and um, in terms of the process of her going about this. I mean, this is pretty gruesome stuff. It is gruesome stuff. And, and when you meet her, I mean, Dorothy is a sort of a bubbly lady. She's now over 80, yeah. but she's still full of energy and vitality, has a sort of um, mischievous glint in her eye. What was that? There's a, a line of a novel. Uh, he was born with a gift for laughter and a sense that the world was mad. That's Dorothy <laughs> Lewis. And, uh, and, and, and so she has fun. She has these hairless cats, but she's at her desk, which is a, a, a table in her living room, she's surrounded by an ocean of papers. Um, and she's uh, just, a, you know, one of the most curious people I've ever met. But she's curious in this peculiar area of trying to understand human violence. And that's mm. led her certainly down some very dark paths and indeed led her into some chambers with people like Ted Bundy, um, you know, alone, uh, serial killers between her and the door with only her persuasive powers as a psychiatrist to, to protect her. Right. You know, I do wonder, um, Alex, and I want to go back to, you mentioned your documentary on COVID, Totally Under Control. And I was just talking with um, one of our news anchors, Doug Krisner, and, he, you know, we were talking about, it's kind of staggering in the face of all the evidence, the scientific medical evidence that's out there about the virus. You know, I'm curious in doing this documentary, why you think that people are having such a hard time believing in the virus and even leading up to the election and even after Donald Trump had the virus, he had a lot of supporters still and thinking he was doing a good job at it. Well, there are two separate things. I mean, one is he was uh, he was trying very hard to convince his followers and you'd almost have to call them followers that the virus wasn't really that real or that dangerous, even though we now know he knew it was. Um, but the doing a good job, that's the part I have a harder time understanding. If anybody watches totally under control, you will see forensically exactly how bad a job he did. You couldn't, between him and Jared Kushner, you couldn't imagine anybody doing a worse job if they had actually tried. 
Um, so that's just a matter of competence. I mean, utterly incompetent. And as a result, you know, two, what, what are we at? 235,000 dead now? Right, right. Um, and counting. And we compare, we compare the United States with South Korea, which uh, discovered their first COVID-positive patient on the same day, January 20th. But South Korea moved very quickly to contain the virus, never had to shut down its economy. And uh, it's, a, it's a country of 51 million people. Uh, to date, less than 500 people have died. So, you know, you, it can be done. You just have to be disciplined about it. You have to have a government that believes in science. You have to have a government that believes in taking steps to protect its people and to engage all its citizens uh, in trying to fight the virus instead of trying to fight each other. You know, Alex, one thing I, I do wonder, and I mentioned kind of coming in, you know, your latest documentary, Crazy Not Insane, and you're taking a look at serial killers, but you've done, you know, documentaries on Enron, you've done them on WikiLeaks, you've done them on the history of the rock group, the Eagles, uh, you've done them on a lot of different subjects. How do you like decide what to to work on is it just something you come across is it kind of random like when Laura Dern who we've talked to on our air too and you know fascinating you have these conversations and you can go a lot of different places is it just you kind of run into something accidentally or I don't know what's your approach it, it's all it differs all the time I mean what do they say luck is where opportunity meets a prepared <laughs> mind right so sometimes I just get lucky um, but sometimes I go seeking something um, <laughs> in this case you know, I wasn't intending necessarily to make a documentary, but I, I just became so interested in Dr. Lewis and also Dr. Lu- uh, also Dorothy's. She had these videotapes mm-hmm. of her examinations of, of a number of serial killers. Uh, and those were pretty compelling, particularly because a number of them have um, dissociative identity disorder, what we used to call multiple personality disorder. And you can see people switch uh, from personality yeah. to personality in the middle of the examination. So that was pretty interesting stuff. And, and, and so I realized, well, that's a, that could be a film there. And, and usually I have a number of films on the boil at any particular time. Right. And we'll advance them a little bit to see if there's more to be done. And, and, and if it seems like there is, then we'll push forward. I would imagine in a lot of these documentaries, like there are so many rabbit holes. Like this happens to me all the time. Somebody says something and all of a sudden I'm going down a rabbit hole and I'm lost for a long time. But I would just think even coming across those films, right, and watching her do her examinations, you could just kind of probably watch them for hours to some extent, because it's kind of fascinating and just, you know, kind of understanding how she works and how she is trying to understand this, you know, group of people and what the commonalities are. Well, right, and and what she ultimately ends up understanding is that uh, a deep dive into serial killers, or even just plain old murderers, as she calls them, you know, actually takes us to a kind of a universal place, and that is childhood, because, Mm -hmm. you know, basically her unified field theory is you'll get an incredibly violent person if you have a mixture of frontal lobe damage, that is to say, she would say, cutting the reins on the horse, so, you know, not so much, um, you know, pull on the limbic system to keep... Uh, keep relentless urges from from acting out. And then usually some kind of terrible physical or sexual abuse as a child, mm. um, and which, which often is what leads to these multiple personalities. And if you have a combination of those two things, you usually get, or you don't mm. always get, but 
if you look at a murder, you almost always find a combination of those two things. Not everybody who has that combination ends up as a murderer. I was flipping it around. Right, right. It's not necessarily <laughs> you check the boxes and it's, you know, the causality or you're going to lead to that. Hey, one thing before we go, um, we are often fascinated here at Bloomberg or just about kind of the financial aspect of making films. And I know we've talked with a lot of minorities that's sometimes hard to get money. And I do wonder, is it still hard for you or because you have won awards, you're noted, you're known, um, you know, you've done projects that people know of, you've got a proven track record, you know, so when it comes to funding and support, is it easily there or does it take work? It always takes work. Oh, I wow. mean, it's easier. Um, and, and, and if you have a reputation, a body of work, it's easier. But I can tell you like five projects I've had turned down this year. So it always takes hard work. That never stops. Yeah, we hear that a lot from those in the documentary and filmmaking industry. Always a lot of hard work to find the funding for your next project. That's Oscar-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. His documentary, Crazy Not Insane, debuting this Wednesday, November 18th on HBO. And check out that full conversation on our podcast feed. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And catch our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast, The Challenges Caused by COVID and the Hopes Under a New Administration for the Solar Energy. We talk about that with Abigail Ross Hopper, President and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now, online, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a safe weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.